Well, what's up, church? How are you doing? Man, it's so good. Are you feeling alive today? You feel like you got an extra hour of sleep? Come on, you got to feel good today. All right. Well, hey, I want to welcome you to X Church. And if you're tuning in online, we're glad to have you. If you're new to our spaces, whether it's online or in person, um, and we have new people all the time, I want you to know that you're kind of stepping into the middle of what I kind of feel like is a really important conversation. We're, We're... kind of exploring some really hard questions that maybe when it comes to when we were younger, our faith, we just kind of believed because someone told us something. And then when we got older, it didn't kind of match up with reality and life. And so maybe your kind of faith just fell apart in that moment. And honestly, it's, it's often because we ourselves personally never tried to explore and kind of dig some real footers for what we believe. And so we've been kind of wrestling with some really hard questions over the last few weeks. We've been talking through a lot of science, okay? And so we, we've been wrestling with questions like, where did God come from? Now, I mean, that's a deep philosophical question, kind of hard to answer, but we, we took our best attempt at it. We, we talked about um, where did the universe come from? Has it always been there or was there a beginning and a creator? Okay, great question. But we also talked about last week, where do we come from? Life. And maybe you noticed this if you were here last week. Maybe you saw this on the board. I I put like there was a variety of different kind of uh, ways of viewing the start of something like life and creation. And I want to just kind of point out something. Here's what's unique about these big questions, right? The truth is they've been debated for thousands of years. And I am not so naive to think that somehow after we finish this series that the debate's going to stop. Like all of a sudden, every expert around the world is going to be like, did you hear what that pastor in Canal Winchester said? Problem has been solved. I am not so naive to think that anything I'm going to come up with is going to kind of, you know, be the end of these, these big questions. But what I do know is that all of us are free to draw our own conclusions from all the evidence and the clues and the stuff that we've been talking about. Which means that you and I can agree to disagree. And there might be some things that I hold and I believe because of evidence and my experience that you don't hold. That's okay. First of all, I want to say if you don't believe in God, if you say I'm atheist, I'm agnostic, I'm whatever, I'm so glad that you're here. I'd rather you be here and be part of this community and you don't have to believe what I believe to belong to a community like this. Please know that. Okay? But I do want us also to at least kind of understand this reality, okay? And that is this. There's really only one truth, though. Okay? Like, we can all have all these, like, we could, I believe this, and, and I believe this perspective, and I think the evidence says this, and we can, we can all draw our own conclusions, but we at least all need to recognize this reality, and that is there's only one truth, and that's the way everything happened. And here's what that means, and we're all going to disagree in this room and watching online. Here's what that means. That means we all need to come to grips with the idea that we're probably all wrong about a lot of things. I'm admitting that, and that's hard for me to admit. That we all have things that we're wrong about, okay? And and so I I say all that to say as we've been talking about science for the last few weeks, we're going to... We're going to change the classroom setting a little bit, okay? So if you went to the science class the last three weeks, today you walked into the history class. Oh, isn't that much better? You got extra sleep, so you have to stay awake, even if you don't like history, okay? Because I do believe that the question we're going to wrestle with might be the most important one of all five. In fact, what is that question? We're going to dive into Christology today with this question. Where did Jesus come from? All right, where did Jesus come from? That is a really important question. Here's what I'm saying. We, we spent the first few weeks putting science on the stand. We're gonna spend the last couple weeks putting faith on the stand, okay? I feel, I feel like it's only fair. And when I say we're putting faith on the stand, let me, let me say it a little, a little more specifically. We're putting the Christian faith on the stand, okay? Now, some of you might go, why are we putting the Christian faith on the sand? We're calling our witnesses today for the Christian faith. Well, it's real simple, and I don't know if maybe this will be a surprise to some of you, and maybe a friend invited you to, hey, they're having a conversation about science and stuff. It's great. You ought to come. But we're a Christian church, okay? I don't know if that's a shock to any of you. I don't know if it's a surprise, but this is a Christian church. And oh, by the way, can I just say this? I pastor a Christian church. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? 
I pastor a Christian church. Now, some of you, I need you to understand, it's not like I went to school for religion, and then when I got out of school, I needed a job, so I just looked on the job market, and I happened to, you know, christianindeed.com or, you know, religionindeed.com, and I found a Christian church that was looking for a pastor, and I applied, and that's how I'm here. No, the reason why I pastor a Christian church is because of what I believe. The reason why many of you are here or watching this online is because this is what you believe. What do I believe? Well, this is interesting. Because when I say it out loud, and I hear myself saying it out loud, it actually sounds kind of crazy. The truth is, for most of my life, I have I've dedicated my life to following the teachings and the way of an ancient Jewish rabbi that lived some 2,000 years ago. When I just say that out loud, it sounds a little crazy. I'm going to be honest with you. If you're an atheist, you're probably going, yeah, that's exactly my point. It's weird, right? I mean, I follow, I've dedicated my life to following the teachings and the way and, and, and the life of a Jewish rabbi who grew up impoverished and he looked nothing like me and he spoke completely different language from me and he grew up in a different culture halfway around the world and yet I've dedicated my life to following him. I know it sounds a little weird, and some of you are going, okay, well then why in the world would you do that? Well, I'm going to answer that question at the end. So, for now, what I want to do is I, I want to wrestle with this deep origin question about Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? Now, I know before you just yell out the answer because Christmas is coming, you're like, I know this one, Pastor. It's Bethlehem. I know that's what you're thinking, and maybe that's true. That's not the question that I want to explore. I want to go a little bit deeper than that, if we could. You see, I, I think the bigger question is not, did Jesus come from Bethlehem? I think it's, did Jesus come from heaven? That's a, that's a more important question, if you ask me, okay? And we're going to celebrate Christmas coming up. And I know all of you, even if you don't necessarily believe in Jesus, you'll probably join into the festivities because it's tradition and you love it. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper when it comes to that. Now, I, I feel like it's only fair if we're going to put... Christianity, we're going to put Jesus on, on display and we're going to kind of look with a magnifying glass at evidence of, of Jesus and who he said he is. I think it's only fair that we start with this. What did Jesus say about himself? Like, I just think he needs to have an opportunity to actually say some things. And so let's put Jesus on the witness stand, okay? So I'm just picturing Jesus, and I don't know what he looks like, but he's getting on the witness stand, and somebody's holding a Bible. Oh, weird. Okay, and he's putting his hand on the Bible, puts his hand on himself, and then he, that's just a really bad Christian joke. Okay. What did Jesus have to say about himself? Because there's a lot of things that have been said about Jesus, and maybe you're like, I don't necessarily believe that you who you think he is, but he has said some really good things. Okay, okay. Well, let's take a look at one of them. If you actually have your Bible, and I know I haven't said this in several weeks, but if you bring your Bible to church, we've been in the science world for a long time, but we are going to dive into the Bible. Um, you can open it up or turn it on to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, I want to start there. Uh, let me give you just the context. Now, this is shortly before Jesus was about to be arrested. And he gathers his disciples. These were these guys that kind of followed him around for a few years. And he, he gathers them together and he says something kind of crazy to them. He says, guys, and this is the beginning of John 14. He says, I'm getting ready to leave you. Now he said, I, I, I know this is going to be a shock, but I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to my father's house. When I go to my father's house, I'm actually going to go there for a while, and I'm going to prepare a place for you because I really want to be with you and hang out with you. So I'm going to go to my father's house, and we're going to, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. I know you're going to miss me, but you know where I'm going. So Jesus says all this. Now, there, there's one of two ways of looking at this because there's like Jesus is going to his father's house. Well, I wonder if some of the disciples might have said, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean Joseph? Which, which father are you talking about? Because here's the thing. Surely they had had time to talk to Jesus' mother, and I'm sure at some point, because they didn't know Jesus when he was younger, they were like, um, we see you. How come his dad's not in the picture? And she's like, well, that's a long story, but doesn't really go into it. But, but here's the truth. The truth is Jesus often talked about his father, and every time he did, he was never talking about Joseph. Okay, the one that we, we you know, the earthly that was kind of betrothed to be married, not that. 
He was always talking about his heavenly father or one he equated with God. Okay? And so over and over, Jesus would do that. So my guess is the disciples kind of, they had a clue. So he's like, I'm going to go to be with my father in his house, but I'm going to come get you. But here's the thing. You already know how to get there. And they're like, we, we really don't. One of them asked, they're like, how do we know how to get there? And I want you to hear what Jesus said in verse 6 and 7 of John 14. He answered them. He said, I am the way. Just tell us what to punch into our GPS, Jesus. What's the... Okay, guys, stop. Put your phone down. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he said this, if you really know me, now they've been with him for three years, you will know my Father as well from now on. He said, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm going to go to be with my Father, which is creator God in heaven. This is what he's kind of alluding to. And he says to them, I know you want to know how to get there. I'm telling you, you already know. We don't know. Jesus said, I am the path. I am the way. I am the truth. Like, you're not going to get there except through me. That was already kind of strange to him. And then he goes a little bit further. This was crazy and says, oh, and by the way, you do know him and you've seen him. And they're going, we have never seen God. No, I mean, I would love to see God. I really would love to see God. But, but honestly, Jesus, we have not seen him, okay? This is, so Jesus is using this language, and they're kind of confused. And I, I love it so much because uh, Philip, who uh, was with one of the disciples, he kind of speaks up a little bit skeptical of what's going on in this conversation. And maybe this is how you feel about Jesus. Look what he said, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Just show us God. If you'll show us Heavenly Father God, the one you talk about in this, show us who God is and then we'll believe. Now what's interesting is Philip is the guy that when Jesus first called him to follow him, Philip's the guy who ran and got his friend Nathaniel and he said, we have found the one the scriptures write about, which is the Messiah. Now I want you to hear this. They were looking for a Messiah, but never believed that Messiah would be God himself. And so there, Philip says what so many people I believe today are saying when it comes to belief in God or belief in Jesus. I will believe if I can see. Show me the proof and then I'll believe. We've been talking about that through this whole series. Give me proof. This is what, this is what Philip asked. I love Jesus' response in verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? I mean, I almost kind of feel like he's taking offense to this. Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, so now it's getting a little bit clearer and also a little stranger. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hold on, I, I, wanna, I want you just to consider this for a moment. This is Jesus. You'd say, maybe you don't believe him. you say, okay, maybe he's a man that lived. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, a.k.a. I am him, and he is me. It's hard to understand. We are one in the same. He goes on to say that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. He's basically saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. That's a bold statement. Like, can you imagine, like, going to your office tomorrow and, Talking to somebody and they're like, hey man, have you ever wondered uh, if, if God exists? Good news, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Like you'd be like, you're crazy, okay? This is what Jesus is saying. Now this is, this is out there. Let's just be honest, this is out there. This is what Jesus is claiming. Look at verse 11, I love Jesus' response. He said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else... He said, at least believe on the what? Everybody say this out loud, on the? What have we been talking about this whole series? We're looking for evidence. At least believe on the evidence of the works. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, if you won't believe my words, would you believe the evidence of my works? If you won't trust what I'm saying to you, would you believe what I have shown you? This is what Jesus Said, I mean, this is bold, right? So, so what's the evidence for Jesus? That's a great question. 
What evidence do we have? Not Jesus and his followers' evidence yet. Let's, let's put that away for a second. Let, let's ask this question. Is there evidence that, A, Jesus actually lived and walked on the earth and that this wasn't all just made up? Okay, because this could just, the whole Bible's thousands of years old. It could just be made up. Is there evidence that he lived? And is there evidence about what he claimed, which is that he's not just a man with a mission, but he is God on a mission? That's a, that's a big difference. So what do we have for evidence? Well, let's go all the way back in the archives in history class now. And we're going to go back to the first century. Now, here's what you need to know. There's, there's not a ton of first century documentation. There, there is some, but not a lot. Why? Because over time, have you ever noticed that, that stuff tends to get lost? I mean, you go back to the first century and just, they didn't have the internet. I mean, we've got stuff that is cataloged forever and it's going to live in cyberspace forever. Back then, okay, most of the, the history of what happened was passed down orally, but the really important things were actually paid scribes would write on parchments or on uh, animal skins or different things. They would write out history and what happened. And a lot of that has been lost over years. It just decays if it's not preserved right. Um, I, I, I like to say it this way. I want you to think about the oldest heirloom that you have from a family member. You could go back and some of you might go, oh, I've got this thing from my great-grandmother. That's awesome. That's awesome. Maybe you've got one thing from your great-great-grandfather. That's great. Have you ever noticed, though, that we just tend to lose stuff over time? Like, like where did all of their precious stuff go that would be worth a lot of money today if I had it? Is it just we tend to lose it over time. That's what happens. Now, thankfully, we do actually have some historical documents that have been preserved. And what I want to show you today, I want to take a little bit of a history tour. We'll go back in history. I want to show you three significant historical sources and what they have to say about a man named Jesus that lived in the first century. And what I want to say about this is all three of these historical sources come from people who do not believe and follow Jesus. So I want to make sure you understand this. We're not looking at the gospel accounts. We're going to talk about those a little bit next week and how we can trust those. I want today to look at history and what are historians from that time, first and second century, had to say about Jesus. Let me introduce you to the first one, a guy known as Tacitus, Publius Cornelius Tacitus. I don't know if you ever, have you ever heard of Tacitus? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, three people. All right, so this is gonna be a great history lesson. I want you to get ready. You're gonna take some notes today, all right? Now, Tacitus is a uh, Roman citizen who grew up in Rome, all right? He was born in 56 AD, which, so that was about a little over 20, maybe 25 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection, what he claimed, okay? And so he grew up in the first century, not quite then, but he also grew up in Rome, nowhere near Jerusalem, okay? He was a Roman through and through, he grew up in a, a pretty good class. They had a caste system, and he grew up in a pretty good class, and he actually uh, became a senator. He became a council, um, and, and he was a historian. In fact, uh, most people, modern scholars, when they look at his historical writing, say that he was one of the most accurate historians of his day, especially when it came to the Roman Empire. He had a unique way of, of preserving the details and eyewitness accounts that is it's just respected today by all scholars, okay? Now again, not a Christian, Roman, really far away from Jerusalem, okay? And one of his works that's pretty significant uh, is called The Annals, and it is a writing about the Roman Empire that covers a period of time from 14 AD to 68 AD. 14 to 68 AD. Now, you may notice that time frame is really important, right? Because that's when Jesus was alive, okay? And why does he cover from 14 AD to 68 AD? That's kind of an odd time frame. It's because he really covered the life and the leadership of two emperors, two Roman emperors, the emperor Tiberius and then the emperor Nero. Maybe you've heard of either of those guys, really famous first century Roman emperors. And so he's covering them. Most of his writings are about them in Rome. But if you pause in one of his books, his 15th book of the Annals, and you look into the 44th chapter, he actually has a little bit of a writing where he talks about these people 
who um, in that day would call themselves Christians. Now, why does he write about them? This is important. It's because he was really writing about Nero, the emperor. Now, um, some people think Nero was a little bit crazy, but in 64 AD, a massive fire broke out in Rome, burned um, a big section of Rome, an old section of Rome. Nero said that the Christians burned it. Most historians, and what I want to show you, including Tacitus, actually believe that Nero was the one who started the fire. He burned his own city because he wanted to build new technology and new things, and everybody wanted the old stuff. And so this is what Tacitus believes. He, he, he talks about what happened when Nero kind of wanted to turn the heat, so to speak, away from himself and onto the Christians. I want, I want you to read a little bit of what he wrote. Okay, this is in the annals. He said, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. In other words, the, the fire that happened, he said, of all the money and everything you have, the fire that happened via order, he goes on to say, um, consequently, to get rid of the report. So what's he saying? He's saying, I believe Nero started this massive fire, okay, by order, and now to cover it up, I'm going to cover it up. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called what? They're called Christians by the populace. Everybody was calling them Christians. Now, this is in Rome, okay? This is in Rome. This is right after 64 AD. He goes on to say, Christus. That's Latin for Christ. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, that's another emperor, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Have you ever heard of him? Yes, if you've been in church and gone to church around Easter, you've probably heard of a guy named Pontius Pilate. Again, what is this doing? This is just corroborating what we have in the gospel accounts. Okay, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. Now, I'm going to talk about the superstition in just a moment. Let's go ahead and read on. The superstition was thus checked for a moment. It stopped, squelled. But then it again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, that's where all this stuff started, but even in Rome, where all things hideous, and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. It's pretty funny. He says, everything that's awful tends to land right here in our backyard in Rome, and then it gets popular. Why? Because this was the Roman Empire, and because Rome was at the center of the Roman Empire. He goes on to say that accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so, uh, not so much of the crime of firing the city. These people, they were all convicted, not for lighting the city on fire, but as of hatred against mankind. Wow. That's, that's quite a statement. So what do we learn from Tacitus? Not a believer, miles and miles away from the epicenter of Jesus in his life. What do we learn? We learn that Jesus was a real man, okay? That he lived during Tiberius. That um, he, was, he, he faced extreme penalty, that would be death, by one of their own procurators, Pontius Pilate. And that after that, the superstition of Jesus got quiet for a moment. Now, what's the superstition? Okay, first of all, understand this. Rome executed a lot of people, okay? Criminals, there's no superstition around them. The superstition around Jesus, why does he call it that? Is this idea that Jesus died and actually came back to life. The superstition got quiet for a moment. Then it broke out again. It started in Judea and it made its way all the way here to Rome. And these Christians, these people, I don't actually think that they, they started the fire. But, but it was for other reasons that, I guess, their hatred against all mankind. Now, we're going we're gonna to see that in a little bit later, that that's a really odd thing to say about these early Christians. Okay? 
And what we have is a really accurate historian who is letting us know that Jesus was a real man. He really lived. He really died. There's a superstition around his death and that there are all these people that years and years later, decades later, that has made its way to Rome and they actually believe in him enough that they would die for what they believe. Okay. He goes on to write, and we're not going to look at it. Um, it's kind of gory. But he talks about what they faced, these Christians. And they would talk about wrapping them in, in animal skins that they had killed and then feeding them to other wild animals or crucifying them on crosses. And then when they weren't dead by night, they would douse them in oil and light them on fire as lanterns. He goes on to talk about this, not with a sympathy like, oh, these are my people, but as a historian saying what happened. Okay? So, so this is Tacitus. Right? Let, let me give you another one. Another one is a guy that is known as really Pliny the Younger. Okay? This is his kind of like original name, but he would go by Pliny the Younger. He was raised by his elder, uh, or by Pliny the Elder, who was his uncle. Now, Pliny did not live in Rome. The Roman Empire was really big. He lived in a, a vicinity that was actually pretty far away, if you move over toward Turkey, called Bithynia. All right? Now, Pliny um, grew up in a really good uh, system within the Roman Empire, a good caste system. He became a lawyer. And, uh, and eventually, as what happens with a lot of lawyers, is they end up going into politics. Okay? And so he ended up eventually becoming um, um, a, a judge, a magistrate, and then a governor of Bithynia. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Pliny is that he was a historian, and as a lawyer, historian, he would write with just immense detail about all kinds of things. And we actually have what's been preserved is about 247 of the letters that Pliny the Younger had, that he had written himself. And so we have a lot of history from this guy, all right? Now, again, he's not a Christian. He's not from Jerusalem, okay? He's a Roman citizen. And, and uh, in fact, one of the most, um, I guess, the more famous things that he wrote about, that this is where we get the historical information, is about a volcano that erupted in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius. Have any of you ever heard of Mount Vesuvius? And if you, if you maybe didn't hear anything before the Amazon Alexa commercial that was out not long ago about a dad trying to help their kid about Pompeii and all that good stuff. Well, well, Pliny the Younger actually wrote about it. It's where we get a lot of our historical information. What's interesting is scholars trust people like Pliny and Tacitus when they write about historical events. There's no reason to not trust them when they write about Jesus or his early followers. Now, so, so Pliny the Younger became a governor of Bithynia. And because he became a governor, he ended up presiding over these court cases where there were these people called Christians that were being drugged from the streets in prison for breaking some Roman law. And now he's presiding over their court cases. He was a lawyer at one point. Now he's kind of the judge. He's over them. And um, he writes a letter to the then emperor. His name was Trajan. He writes a letter to Emperor Trajan because he said, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I want to make sure that I'm making Rome happy with how I handle these Christians, okay? And so Pliny the Younger writes him a letter, and he describes in this letter the method that he's using to determine if they are guilty of whatever law they broke. I want you to hear what Pliny the Younger uh, wrote about them in one of, his, one of his books. He said this, in the meanwhile... The method I have observed toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians. So someone came and they would tell me, these evil people are Christians. Here's what I did. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. And he goes on to say, if they confessed it, I repeated the question. So if I said, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. If they confessed it, I repeated the question a second and a third time. This time, on the third time, I added the threat of capital punishment. If you tell me you're a Christian one more time, I'm going to kill you. Execution. That's your, okay? If they still persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. This is Pliny the Younger. He's writing the emperor, and he's going, here's my method. I bring these people in, and they were turned in by informants and all these different things. And, and if uh, I ask them straight up, are you a Christian? And if they say yes, I ask them again, are you sure you're a Christian? And they say, yes, I ask them one more time, but I threaten them. Are you sure? Now, many um, Christians died because they confessed it all the way to their death. Now, there were some that did not. 
there were some that were so scared under losing their life that they actually turned. And uh, Pliny goes on to actually talk about what he did for a method for those who said, wait, okay, okay, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christian. To make sure they really weren't a Christian, here's what he did. Here was his method. He said, I made them recite invocations to the gods, the Roman gods, and to the emperor himself as a god. Oh, also, because it was all surrounding this Christ guy, I made them curse Christ. That's what they had to do. This is his like litmus test to go, are you, okay, now you're saying I'm not a Christian. I don't know if I buy it. Here's what you have to do. Recite all these things, incantations, everything to these guys, and then curse Christ. Why did he use that? Can I ask you just to think, why would he use that as the method or the test? It's because one of the things he found out about these Christians is that they didn't just believe there was a man named Jesus who lived. They actually believed that he was God. That was significant. Again, what are we looking for? We're looking for evidence of the historicity of Jesus and his claim. He claimed, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Okay, this is pretty significant. Now, what's sad is as you read on, he, uh, Pliny the Younger, in writing this letter, um, he actually goes on to, to learn from the people who like recanted their faith he learns from them the acts and the habits of these early Christians. Remember, remember what Tacitus said, these uh, people that just do atrocities against mankind, they hate mankind. I want you to, to see, again, this is a contemporary of Tacitus. Here's what he said. Um, this is what they told him. They affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Can any of you guess what day they were meeting on? What? Said, oh, Sunday. They, they would worship once a week on Sunday. And I love this part. They would do it before it was light. Isn't that crazy? Because we get daylight savings time, and you can't still get here on time for an 11, 15 a.m. experience. Let that sink in for just a moment. That's, all right, we'll move on. And, okay, by the way, why do you think they met before light? Yeah, because under the shroud of darkness, otherwise they could be captured and killed, right? So here's what they did. This is what we learned. These evil Christians, they would meet on a certain fixed day. Oh, and of singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as a God. Now they're singing these songs, and they're not just singing these hymns about Christ. They're singing to Christ as like you would to a God. He goes on to say that and of binding themselves by a psalm oath. So they all say, we're all going to take an oath together. This is what they would do, the early Christians. Not to wicked deeds. You know, you think, we're going to go destroy the city. No. But never to commit any fraud or theft or adultery. Never to falsify their word nor deny a pledge when they were called upon to deliver it up. This is what was so awful about these Christians. They went to church they worshiped, they all promised that they were never gonna lie, never steal, never break their vow with their spouse. They were gonna always honor their word. Emperor Trajan, am I doing the right thing? And guess what the Emperor Trajan wrote back? He said, yep, you're doing the right thing. Again, not a believer. I just wanted you to hear what a historian had to say. Let me give you the third and final one. It's probably one that's the, the most popular of them all. His name is Josephus. How many have ever heard of Josephus, right? Okay, a lot more hands go up. Um, Titus Flavius Josephus. Now, do you see this name? I'm not even going to try my best to pronounce it. This is his real name that he was born with because he's Jewish. So this is where he's different than the other two historians, and he has a different perspective, by the way. He was a Jewish-born um, man who grew up and lived in Jerusalem, okay? He grew up in Jerusalem. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this. He was born in 37 AD, which is within just a few years of Jesus' death. Okay? So why, why is this important? Because Josephus was a Jewish man who some say that he was part of the Pharisaic group. Okay? He was elite. He was trained. We know this. He's a historian. He wrote things down. Okay? But we also know this, that when the events that were happening in the New Testament were happening in the book of Acts and after that, he was in the center of it and he was old enough. Okay? He was there. Now, 
one of the things you need to know is that he wrote all kinds of different things that, that we have. In fact, um, most say that he is the most significant first century historian of first century Palestine, this area. Because the other ones I mentioned, they were in Rome or in Bithynia. This guy was in Jerusalem, okay, around Palestine in the first century. And here's the thing that's interesting about him. He, he wrote um, several different things. One of them he wrote was about the Jewish-Roman War. And he wrote with incredible detail about the Jewish-Roman War. Can you guess why he wrote with great detail of the Jewish-Roman War? I'll give you a hint. It's because he fought in it. As a Jewish man in a rebellion that rose up against Rome in 66 A.D., Okay, the Jews rebelled against Rome and they fought. That began this like war, this battle. You got to think that this carried on. Now, if you uh, are familiar with history, then maybe you know that Jerusalem was ultimately overcome and most of it destroyed, especially the temple by 70 AD. All right, now he fought in this war and when he was in this war fighting against Rome, he got captured. And when he got captured, he defected. He said, oh, well, actually, I know I'm Jewish and all this, but I really believe in Rome. And he defected to Rome. Now, the military commander at the time was a guy named Titus Flavius Vespasian. That's the name of the military commander that was actually fighting against Jerusalem at the time. Titus Flavius Vespasian. Titus Flavius Vespasian. Oh, that's interesting. I, his name, Greek name is what? Titus Flavius Josephus, why is that? It's because when he defected to Rome, okay, he actually kind of hit it off with Vespasian, who was the commander. He actually predicted, or some say, or he wrote in, we don't know for sure if he predicted this, that Vespasian was going to be the next emperor, which he ended up becoming the emperor. He also said about Vespasian that he thought he was the Jewish Messiah. Well, that's interesting. This Roman commander, the Jewish Messiah. This is what he thought, okay, when all the Messianic stuff. Why, why is all that important? Because what he had to say um, from his perspective as a Roman defector, he was not a sympathizer with Jesus. He grew up Jews, Jew, uh, Jewish. He defected to Rome. And then he wrote all kinds of things. Now, maybe you're familiar with his most famous work. Uh, it was called The Jewish Antiquities. Okay, where he covered the Jewish people from way back, some say as far back as creation, all the way through uh, several volumes that he wrote about the Jewish people. What's interesting is there's one particular point I want to reference. Now, there's a couple places where he references Jesus. He, he was he born after he died, but lived in the same time frame of his early followers. But in 62 AD, he would write this. He would write um, about what happened in 62 AD that the chief high priest at the time of the Jewish people was a guy named Ananus. And Ananus actually held court. He convened court for the Sanhedrin. In 62 AD, this is what uh, Josephus would write about. And oh, by the way, he had intimate knowledge because he was in Jerusalem at the time and an adult. That they brought in this guy named James who claimed to be the brother of, of Jesus, the one they call Christ. And they tried him according to their Jewish rules and found James guilty of breaking their Jewish faith and tradition, and he was sentenced by the high priest to be executed by stoning. James. Now, why is this so interesting? Because when you look in the gospel accounts, Jesus' brother James did not believe that Jesus was God. Do you understand that? He didn't, I mean, he grew up. Jesus was his older brother. Now, I have an older brother. His name's Pete. And here's a great question to always ask, okay? If you grow up around your siblings, right? What would it take to convince you to believe that your sibling was God? Think about it. What would it take for my brother, Pete, to convince me to go, hey, Tim, you know, I know all those times when I pushed you around and I treated you badly and all this. I know, I'm sorry. But, hey, I'm really God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, think about this, okay? James was willing to die for this. What happened? Something happened. We know that leading up to his death, James did not believe in his brother. But after his death, he did. Why? Paul would tell us it's because Jesus the resurrected Jesus appeared to his brother. 
Now, if my brother died and was dead for days and I went to his funeral and then he knocked on my front door, that's a different story. Okay, this is what happens with James. And Josephus writes about it. Why? Okay, what am I saying? Why are all these accounts so important? That's a great question. Because these are non-Christian, unbiased accounts that talk about the historicity of Jesus. He really did live. They talked about how he died. Talked about a superstition around how he died. Talked about decades later, his followers, people who had never seen him or met him, were willing to die for what they said that they believed. Why is this? This is really significant evidence. We're talking about the evidence of what Jesus claimed. Now, you know what's fascinating to me when you look at what was written about Jesus in the first century and you take the non-Christian plus the Christian sources, guess what you discover? There is more that has been written about this ancient Jewish carpenter from the first century than the man who was the most popular and most powerful man in the known world, Roman Emperor Tiberius. There is more written about Jesus than Tiberius. Think about that for just a second. That's crazy. And next week, we're going to talk about the gospel accounts a little bit. How can we trust the gospel? How can we trust the Bible? We're going to talk about it next week. But what's interesting about the gospel accounts is the majority of the four gospel accounts we have all focus primarily on the week leading up to his death and his resurrection. They put all their energy, why? Because not only did Jesus claim to be God, but the central claim for Jesus was also around resurrection. That was his central claim. In fact, there was a moment before he was arrested when um, he went to, he was really going to, uh, and he saw a woman, a friend of his, who was grieving over the death of her brother, Lazarus. And I want you to see what Jesus said in John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, this was Martha, he said, I am the what? Everybody say this out loud. I am the, and the, now, this is, he hasn't died yet. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. But this is important. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, this is kind of a bold statement to make. You haven't died, Jesus, but you're saying that you are resurrection and you are life. And that anyone who believes in you, though they die, will actually not die, but they'll live. Now, that's a bold thing to say, but Jesus, what did, he, what did we learn that he said in John 14? He said, if you don't believe the things I say, would you believe the evidence on what I do? Right after he said this, guess what he did? He went and raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, I'm the resurrection. Watch this, guys. Pull the stone away from the tomb. And he raised the dead man who had been dead for four days. Now, listen, there were all kinds of witnesses there. All kinds of Now, why was that an important event? Because that actually is what triggered the Jewish leaders to actually seek Jesus out to put him to death. That's a bold claim. I'm the resurrection and the life. By the way, um, Jesus didn't just make that claim and say, I have the power to raise others from the dead. He made that claim about himself. I want to show you this in Matthew 17. I want you to see what Jesus, now three different times Jesus got with his disciples before he was arrested and he made the same kind of claim. He, when he gathered with his disciples, when he came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's, that's a phrase he used for himself all the time, son of man. They will kill him and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Why are you filled with grief? He just got done. Well, okay, I get it. Jesus just said, guys, they're going to kill me. But here's what I need you to know. I'm going to come back to life. And they were filled with grief. Why? Because, okay, Jesus, we've seen you raise someone from that. And we've seen you do miracles. And we've seen you open blind eyes. But how are you going to do that for yourself when you're dead? It's hard to to really understand this. But what I need you to understand about Jesus and what he claimed is central to his claim was not just that he was God, but that he would be raised to life, resurrection. So what is there about the resurrection? I, I wanna just, in the remaining of our time, just quickly, I wanna go through some evidence, and I'm not gonna even go through the Bible on this, but that we get this from the biblical accounts. I, I wanna go through, what, are, what do we know about the resurrection? Is there evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection? I actually believe that there is. Okay, the first one is this. There, the details about Jesus' death are well-documented. 
okay? I read to you an account by Tacitus who could describe that was under Pontius Pilate at the extreme penalty of the Romans that he was killed, okay? It's not in question that his death was well documented. Why do I say that? Because I've heard people say this, and they do. They say, um, maybe he didn't actually die on the cross because you could be there for hours and hours and hours. Maybe he passed out, and then maybe when they took him down from the cross, they put him in a grave, but he really wasn't dead. He was just kind of like passed out, and then he woke up, and then he pushed the stone, and then he came out, and he said, I'm back, guys. So this is, this is what people say. Can I just tell you that that does not really hold water historically? Here's why, okay? First of all, the Romans were experts at killing people with crucifixion. This was not their first go-round, okay? They were experts. Secondly, the soldiers who were responsible to do the execution, guess what happened to them if they let one of the prisoners go free and live? You die in their place. These guys are experts. They're gonna make sure. How did they make sure with Jesus? Do you remember what the account, what we've been restored by those who were there? They took a, a spear and they pierced his side. And when they went up through the ribs and they pierced his side, guess what it said? It said blood and water poured out. Why would blood and water pour out of him? Well, it's because they pierced the pericardial sac and he had something called pericardial effusion, which is when water fluid builds up in the sac, it often causes asphyxiation because then the heart can't pump the blood. And so it's, again, more evidence that he really died, okay? There's evidence, non-Christian evidence and Christian evidence, okay, that say he actually died. Look at another one. I love this. Women were the first to witness his resurrection, now, I don't know what, some of you are like, what's so big about that? Why not? Women, that makes a lot of sense. You want something done right? Come on, women. You were supposed to be like, amen, preach it. Can't trust the men with it. Actually, what's interesting is in the first century, uh, women were not even considered credible enough to be considered eyewitnesses in court. So it's fascinating to me that if you were making all this up, that you would take the most important element of the story, the resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to first entrust it to women? Why in the world would you do that if they're not considered credible in the first century? The only reason why you would say that is because that's how it actually happened. That's how it happened. Next one. None of Jesus' disciples believed he was alive when they were first told. I love this aspect because Jesus told him at least three times, I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm going to die, but I'll be back. Okay, he told him three times. And then the moment the women and others came and told him, he's alive. Guess what? They didn't believe him. They ran to the empty tomb, and when they saw it, they left puzzled. What happened? Someone take his body? I don't... What is going on? They did not believe it. So much so that it makes them look stupid. Okay? If you're going to make all this up and you're the ones who are going to actually carry the religion on, you don't hold a lot of credibility. You got Thomas who wasn't there when he first appeared to the other disciples. And he said, I won't believe unless I see it with my very own eyes. They didn't believe it either. Okay? Next one, I love this. The early leaders did not make themselves to be the heroes, right? Peter, oh yeah, you know what's written about Peter? He denied even knowing Jesus when he was arrested. You don't write those kind of things in when you're trying to build up your credibility. Paul, he was persecuting these early Christians. You don't write this, but, but it's because it's how it actually happened. It's history, okay? Next one. James, the brother of Jesus, didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. Again, I ask you, what would it take for your sibling to convince you that he was God? My guess is a resurrection. Yeah. Next one. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once after his resurrection. The apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, he didn't just appear to a few people, not just even to all the disciples a few times, but at one point he even appeared to over 500. That means that there are hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that are all corroborating these accounts when it's happening in the early days. Why is this important? Because within two decades, even three, the message had already traveled all the way up to Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. How do you get your story straight? Huh? 
How in the world does this not, how in the world if this is all made up, do you get your story straight? Well, it's because they all saw Jesus and they could attest to it. All right, next one. Jesus' followers gave their lives for what they saw and believed. You want to talk about the ultimate litmus test? I'll tell you what it is. If somebody holds a gun to your head and they said, are you really a Christian? Do you believe in him that much? If you say yes, I'm pulling the trigger. That happened. History tells us on every single one of Jesus' disciples, some say with the exception of John, and they tried to burn to death, and then he was exiled onto an island, um, were killed for their faith and what they believe they saw. See, that's, people don't do that for a lie. Mm-mm. They'll do it for what they believe is true because they saw him. And then lastly, one of my favorites is, maybe it's not so much evidence, but it is. Jesus is still changing the world today. Billions and billions of people call him Lord. Billions of people, it has changed the landscape of our world. No single person, listen, if you want to deny his divinity, that's fine. But what you cannot deny today is that no single person, if you want to say it in his own humanity, if you deny his divinity, has single-handedly changed the course of human history like Jesus. No one. And at the end of the day, I'll say it this way. What, what really, for me, is one of the greatest evidences is not that just that Jesus has changed the world, but can I say it this way? Jesus has changed my life. And I'm not the only one, but I imagine that many of you would say the same thing. Why well, follow a Jewish rabbi who lived thousands of years before you, who didn't look like you and didn't speak the same language in a different culture in a different time. Why? All I can tell you is that not only his words, but the evidence of his works were so convincing for me. But when I was 17 years old, do you know what really caused me to go all in with Jesus? It was the fact that I encountered him in a personal and real way. I didn't see him physically with my eyes, but something inside of me came alive I encountered the presence of a living Jesus. And it's changed me. Can I just say this? I I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for Jesus changing my life. And I am no way, shape, or form declaring that I am perfect because I am not. And my wife's right there and you just ask her afterwards and she'll tell you, I'm not perfect. I can tell you this, I'm not who I was. And though I don't have a rap sheet a million miles long, and maybe if you do, that's, that's okay. Here's the good news. Jesus can change you too. But I can tell you this, I know what my soul was like, and it was full of cancer. And I know about my wicked thoughts, and I know about the times in my life when I've cheated, and I've cussed, and I've lied, and I've hurt people, and I've thought the worst thoughts ever, and I, I know me, the real me, and I'm not perfect, and I'm in journey, but I'm just telling you this right now, I'm not who I once was. So I, I, mean, I don't know if that means anything to you, but it means everything to me. Because Jesus isn't just changing the world, he's changing me. And that's maybe one of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life. So I will gladly give the rest of my life to following this Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago because I don't believe he was just a Jewish rabbi. I believe it was God who clothed himself in flesh and blood and stepped into our world and died on a cross for me and then he rose again and proved once and for all that he is the way and the truth and the life and you don't get to the Father except through believing in him. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. Amen. Now, as I close, now I want to turn the table and I want to ask you a question. There is so much historical evidence that Jesus was real and what he claimed, what people believed. My question to you today is, what do you say about him? See, you you could go through life and go, well, I hear all what you're saying, but I'm just going to ignore it. That's what we do sometimes when it comes to science, what what we do with other things. I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to ignore it. That's not what a person of intelligence does. That's not what a person of faith does. Where they meet in the middle, that's where a person says, I'm going to look at all the evidence that's presented and I'm going to have to make a decision of what I believe about Jesus. And a guy who was an atheist, who did not believe in God, but then not only believed in God, but believed in Jesus. A guy named C.S. Lewis. I want you to hear just a quote of something he wrote in Mere Christianity where he confronts us all And he said that Jesus really only gives us a couple options of what we can say about him. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, 
I'm gonna try here to prevent anyone, even you, from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. What do people often say that's so foolish? He's like, I wanna save you from saying that. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, the golden rule and love your neighbor. Oh, he was a brilliant moral teacher. He says, I wanna save you from saying something that foolish, right? To say he was a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Good teacher, no way he's God. He said, that is the one thing we must not say. He goes on to say, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. No, he would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. So you're either wacko and you're crazy or else he would be the devil of hell or else he's a liar. Okay, go on. But he said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. Here's what C.S. Lewis would say. Here's our only three options with Jesus. He was either a lunatic, madman, we should lock him up, throw away the key, okay? Or he was a liar and all the things he claimed, that's a lie, you can't claim that. Or he really was the son of God and he is Lord. He's either a lunatic, a liar, a Lord. So my question to you is this, after all the evidence that's been presented, which one is he to you? Which one? See, at the end of the day, I think all of us have to make this decision about Jesus. And I'm just standing here to tell you, when I was 17 years old, I made the decision to say he was Lord. And I'm gonna tell you this, it was the best decision of my life. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? I wanna have a moment of prayer. I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes in this moment. And I just wanna encourage every person just to hold still and just respect this moment because I believe maybe there's some of you here today that you've been coming, you've been watching this, but I wanna just say this real boldly. You've been coming and you kind of like a little bit of what all you experience and feel, and, but you've never actually come to grips with this question, who is Jesus? And maybe you've been dabbling around Christianity and you like what people do and things have come of it, but I'm asking you, what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Either he's Lord or He's a lunatic or he's a liar, but he didn't give us any room for anything else. Maybe today, maybe for the first time, your eyes have been opened to see who Jesus really is. And as we're praying, I just wonder if maybe there's someone here today. Maybe it's just one person. I don't know. It could be 10. It could be 20. I don't know. There may be a bunch of you online right now that you're watching this. And the truth is that all of a sudden you, you have this sense where you're sensing God's presence a sense of faith to go, I believe in Jesus. I didn't, I didn't know I would, but I do. I believe in Jesus. I want to invite you, if that's you today, to take a step, a bold step of faith. You see, it never really becomes more real than when you actually step out in faith and say, I believe. And today, if that's you, I want to lead you in a confession of faith. Right where you are, it's a personal moment, just between you and God. This is you and Jesus. If that's you, I want to invite you to say a prayer with me right where you are, would you just say these words? Say, Jesus, today I believe in you. I believe that you really lived and you died for me and that you rose again to give me new life. And the evidence, God, is, is overwhelming, but even more so right now in this moment, the evidence I feel on the inside drawing me to you. I, I respond to that. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin, my error, my wrong. And I don't, I don't know what it looks like, but from this moment forward today, I, Jesus, I declare your Lord, your Lord of my life. And I surrender my life to you. Thanks so much for tuning into this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We wanna connect with you and we wanna be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. 
And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.